Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today's episode is Tactical Med, Everly Tactical Med. We did a live feed the other night on Instagram, and it's kind of cool because we had Kurt from team underscore Phil Craft. It's not even it, is it? It's, it's like t- Kurt underscore, underscore t- team Phil Craft. <laughs> Whatever. I had Kevin on there as well, which is at Devil Dog Consult. I didn't call everybody by their Instagram names. Nobody has normal names anymore. So... For all you guys who don't know, Team Philcraft is a group of individuals that just, for lack of better terms, is a, a team associated with Philcraft. And so Kevin's in our network, and he's definitely a part of Team Philcraft. And at Devil Dog Consulting, has we've done a whole bunch of training together. Hell, we trained for months together. And we're all together now doing a, a training concept, and it's pretty exciting. And there's lots of opportunities for us to mesh together and share experiences. And I didn't even realize it, but... You know, Kurt was telling me a story the other day that related in the medical field with a mass casualty that he experienced. And at this, I think the same day, maybe I was just talking to Kevin about medical stuff and he was telling me about his first experiences as an EMT, an active EMT in the U.S. Marine Corps. So today's episode is going to, we're going to talk about the stories. We're going to talk about some things that you could do in the survival realm and really in, the, in any realm, whether it's in your car, at home on your person to be better medically prepared. We use the terminology TCCC, which is tactical combat casualty care, which has to do with, you know, trauma affiliated or associated with combat. And that's kind of like the medical knowledge that we like to spill because it's the medical information you need to help you in the event of something catastrophic kind of in our genre, which is survival. So what I'll do first is, you know, cause we haven't had these guys on the podcast before, I'm going to let Kurt introduce himself, tell you about who he is, his experiences in the military, kind of a sum up of his bio, and then also tell you what he's doing now. And I'll do the same for Kev. So we'll start off with Kurt, man. What's going on, everybody? My name's Kurt, like Mike said in the introduction, Kurt underscore Fieldcraft or Team Fieldcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Basically joined the Army in 1998, Uh, was an airborne infantryman for... Uh, about five years, would later move on to 18th Airborne Corps Long Range Surveillance uh, as an assistant team leader, uh, and then eventually would move on to Special Forces, um, where I retired last year in August. So basically what I'm doing now with, with Mike is Mike and I were teammates in 3rd Special Forces Group, uh, was working for a little while uh, as a contractor for Special Operations Command. Um, it was an office job, and uh, to be quite honest, uh, it didn't suit me very well. Um, I was good at the job, but uh, still not ready to sit uh, behind a desk. I picked the phone up one day. Mike and I had a conversation about potentially uh, doing something out west. Uh, I'm originally from California, so you know we just talked several times, and Mike basically said, "Hey, man, why don't you just come work with me?" And uh, you know the rest has been. Uh, history. We've been working together ever since then. So, all right. So at this time, I want to introduce you guys to Kevin from uh, Devil Dog Consulting. He's been on a couple of live feeds for with us, and uh, also he's posted stuff with us in the past on Instagram and, and social media space. So, go ahead, Kev. Hi, my name's uh, Kevin Falk. I'm the CEO with Devil Dog Consulting. I work currently in Brevard County. Florida is a member of Brevard County Fire Rescue's Hazmat and Technical Rescue Team, where I'm also a firefighter paramedic. I also teach EMT and paramedic at the State College, 
and then in my spare time, uh, help train civilians and uh, military and law enforcement with my company. I also was in the United States Marine Corps. It's where I started my career as a member of Crash Fire Rescue at uh, MCAS New River. After I got out of the Marine Corps, I worked in Alabama as a paramedic in my hometown. And then I moved to Brevard County in 2000 and got hired with Brevard County Fire Rescue in 2001. Awesome, man. So yeah, two guys with a lot of experience. So looking forward to this episode. Before we kick off this episode and talk about exactly what we're breaking down for you guys today, I'd like to give a special shout out to the Texas Rangers on baseball team. It's funny because I, I was texting a couple of people saying, hey, I'm going to see the Texas Rangers. And they actually thought it was the law enforcement agency and not the baseball team. But it was the baseball team. I got invited by Napoleon who is a strength and conditioning coach out at the uh, training facility in, in Arizona. And I appreciate having me out there. It was a, it was an honor meeting all the players out there. And it was a warm welcome. And I hope to be working with you guys in the future. A big shout out to uh, a guy named Nick, who's a baseball player, whose actual uncle worked with me in special operations. And himself, he was a West Point grad, which is really neat. And he served two years in the 101st. Uh, airborne division as a ordinance officer which was a really unique thing to have especially when you look at you know baseball players are all american it's an all-american sport but when you see somebody who's served in the military as well and gave up that potential opportunity at that time to serve their country and then to go back to it and i, I wish him the best and i hope he gets in the, in the major leagues definitely all right guys so tactical med what is tactical med so tactical med is really everything in the realm of treatment for all the things that you would face in your everyday situation, right? Because, you know, Phil Craft, we, we work in the survival realm. And so when we're looking at man-made and natural catastrophes, what are the most likely injuries that you'll potentially face? Uh, so Kev, you know, this question goes to you, man. Like when we're looking at accidents or look at trauma and man-made and natural catastrophes, what, what do you expect to see? A lot of times people get the false idea that they're going to get a shot when we talk, start talking about carrying medical supplies, when in all reality, there's a lot of other things that can happen. Anywhere from uh, motor vehicle crashes to using your chainsaw out in the back to hunting accidents. All those things are something that you have to be prepared for and you have to carry uh, basic medical supplies or a, a bleeding control kit with you to be able to help yourself or help a loved one. And that's a good point because most people would think, I mean, the first thing that people think about when they think about TCCC or tactical combat casualty care, even carrying med tactical medical kicks in their car, they're thinking about a tourniquet. They're thinking about gauze to pack gunshot wounds. But you're saying the reality is statistically probably reality is more likely it's going to be something that's just common to all, right? Right. Statistically, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be, you know, car wrecks, uh, accidents around the house, uh, even even something as simple as you're cutting you're cutting meat or vegetables in the kitchen and, and you mess and cut your finger or, or cut cut your wrist or, or some part of your body that was uh, that was not meant to. I don't know where you're going with that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're going somewhere with that, like an appendage that was meant to be, that didn't need to be cut. Um, well, we'll just go with that. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. So when we're thinking, when we're looking at medical kit. You know, I, I think about North American Rescue because they make good stuff and they make the cat tourniquet, which me and Kurt have used on active duty. And is the medical trauma kits that are being put out, these IFACs, 
is that the wrong stuff to have? You know, if, if I'm treating combat wounds potentially, and then I cut my hand on a chainsaw or I injured myself in a hunting accident, is that not the same stuff that's in that kit? It is the same stuff. Uh, most of your military IFAC kits carry. What, what's IFAC stand for? Stands for individual first aid kit. I, uh, that's the first time like I've ne- I've been in the military like almost twenty years. I, I've, I don't even know what that means. I knew that. Did you know that? I, did. <laughs> I didn't know that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so you carry all those items. You know, like you said, you you always want a tourniquet. Um, I, I'm with you guys. I prefer the cat. I think it's the easiest to put on yourself. Easiest to put on others. There are other uh, tourniquets that you can get out there. There are three that are approved by the trauma committee. That would be the cat tourniquet, the soft T tourniquet, and then the EMT tourniquet. Those are the three that that the people that developed all the tactical medicine uh, put through rigorous testing and, and decided that those three were the best suited for combat. So you have, with any med kit, if you're going to carry a tourniquet, it's always good to carry some type of a hemostatic gauze. Once again, there's three of them out there that the, the tactical community approves. And that's, uh, first of all, it's the combat gauze. They say that one's the best. And then they have Sealox Rapid and then Cheeto gauze. And uh, Now, is this gauze that you would use to stuff a gunshot wound or is it gauze? Because when I think about combat gauze, I, re- I remember stuffing wounds and you know stu- stuffing a cavity and compressing that to stop bleeding. But what about these superficial wounds? Is that can you use that combat gauze on superficial? You stuff? can. You can use those uh, not only just uh, stuffing wounds, whether they be lacerations or gunshot wounds, but you can. Uh, it comes. It's, it's little gauze that uh, comes with with it, and you're able to use your your knife or shears, and you can actually cut that off and, and put it uh, uh, topical as well. Versus, but, and now you can't do this thing. Same thing in reverse, right? Because Gauze, combat gauze has like a blood clotting properties, right? Chemicals that clot blood. Correct. Combat gauze is made from combat gauze is made from kaolin, which is an inert earth clay, and then the Sealox Rapid and the Cheeto gauze are both made from chitosan, which is basically crunched up shrimp shells. Um, they remove the protein from it, so people that are allergic to shellfish don't get the uh, allergy from it. Uh, the Sealox Rapid actually. If you watch some of the tests, it seems to work a little quicker and better, and you don't have to use as much as combat gauze. But combat gauze is is, is the original, and it's been tried improvement over and over and over on the battlefield. You said it's chitosan? Chitosan is the active ingredient for Sealox Rapid and the Cheeto gauze, whereas kaolin is the active ingredient for combat gauze. You know, that's something, again, that I'm learning here, which is kind of cool. So if I use combat gauze with any blood clotting property, I can apply it to a wound that's like a superficial, like, you know, scrape or cut, and it could stop the bleeding just as well or even better than just a standard piece of cloth or gauze, right? Correct. And and we even uh, tell older communities there in Florida, we have a lot of 55 and older communities that the, uh, the older people that have uh, varicose veins they can even keep that stuff on hand and even use that if they have a varicose vein that uh, that pops or that they hit on the side of the bed and it starts bleeding. They're able to use use that gauze and, and compress that. Why does the chemical get into their body? 
Um, yes, it works. It works where your blood, the, the, the kaolin or the, the chitosin that's in, that's the active ingredients in that, uh, works with your body and clotting and makes it clot faster. All right. So that's cool. So we're looking at, you know, IFACs as compared to, cause I always thought there's going to be a different kind of kit, but you're, you're saying that, um, most likely you could use the military IFACs as your first aid kit, generally speaking. Yes, and that's what uh, my, my company also make just a bleeding control kit. Uh, I got that. That's what I use in my kit. I keep right, on that. and it's got it's got a cat tourniquet in it. It's got Sealox Rapid, and it's and you can have the option to throw a chest seal in it if, if if you want that as well. And you know, battlefield medicine. When you look at T Triple C, the reason those things that I decided to put those in a bleeding control kit is those are the three biggest things that kill guys on on the battlefield. And those are the three biggest things that kill people bleeding out, uh, tension pneumothoraxes or open chest wounds, uh, sealing those up as well. What, what, what do you recommend uh, as far as the, the best IFAC, the best generalized IFAC that's out there on the market now? I mean, is there a go-to one? Uh, the, there's, there's several companies that make it. I wouldn't say that there's any one. Obviously, my companies, I would always, I would always push that one. But, <laughs> but of course. But, but you know, long as your IFAC, you know, a basic IFAC that you're going to carry with you. Um, and the reason that, that I say my companies and, and there's others, there's others that are out there is it's nice and small. Um, and that's where a lot of people mess up in their everyday carry is they buy this IFAC for their, for their plate carrier or for their rig or whatever that they carry and they keep it in their car. Well, it doesn't do you any good. You know, as we know, you can bleed out in less than three minutes. If a major artery, if a major, major artery gets hit, you've got less than three minutes sometimes before you're, you're bled out. And uh, with some of your bigger arteries that run in your arms and your legs, you can be unconscious in 30 to 45 seconds. So you, you don't have time to run out to your car if something happens. So it needs to be something that you either have multiple ones or you always decide to keep it on you. Yeah, I always recommend, you know, in the survival realm, I always push these Patagonia Stealth Atom, you know, the sling fly fishing bag because, you know, it's easy to put on your person. It's easy to carry when you're hiking. It's not inconvenient. It's comfortable. And then you can stick an IFAC in it. And so I always have a kit that I have on my person that has IFAC or maybe a tourniquet. And then I'll keep a bag inside my vehicle. And what I've noticed about people have started in recently is maybe the crossovers. They take in their IFAC that they carry in their kit, which is, a, you know, a small general purpose pouch. And then they use that in their car instead of using like a robust. I think about an ambulance service. You know, if mm -hmm. if if I need medical attention, I don't want a dude showing up with an IFAC. Right. I want an ambulance showing up with a slew of options. And so why not carry a vehicle bag with a step up in care? Um, that you're able to uh, have available. So, you know, you talked about the IFAC, talking specifically about a vehicle, what would you look at and maybe bumping up your potential kit situation for your vehicle? All right, yeah, so when you're talking about a vehicle, obviously you can get something bigger than just uh, putting something in your cargo pocket to keep on you. You can start looking at, uh, like, like we said earlier, North American Rescue. Uh, they offer a wide variety of products. You have emergency trauma dressings that uh, that is a compression bandage. Uh, you've got all kinds of other different items. But when you start looking at a car kit, you uh, you want to start looking at maybe some Mylar blankets because when somebody has a traumatic injury, one of the things that actually 
helps to kill people in a traumatic situation is hypothermia. So your body getting cold and as your body's temperature drops down, it, it loses its ability to clot and therefore you, breathe, you bleed even more as, as, as your body gets colder. So you want to look at some type of mylar blankets. You can literally go to That's what, the soul, the soul mylar blanket. I got that right. in my survival kit. Yep. It's like yep. three bucks. Yeah. I was going to say, and you, you can even, you can get the, the, uh, those as well. You, you can order them off all those kind of things off Amazon. Off of fieldcraftsurvival.com. That's right. Off of fieldcraftsurvival.com. Your soul so, blankets. So their website's up. Uh, but you know, some emergency trauma dressings, some some blankets to keep keep your casualty warm. And the biggest thing is with tourniquets is, as you guys know from being in special operations, is not only buy tourniquets to keep around and have, but you have to practice with them. You can't buy all these tourniquets, buy all this medical gear, have it there, and then expect that when that when that traumatic situation happens or that uh, stressful situation happens, that you're going to be able to put a tourniquet on or put a trauma dressing on when you've never done it before and now you're having to do it under stress. It's like buying the, the $3,000 pistol and expecting uh, it to do the fundamentals of marksmanship for you. Yeah, <laughs> I do that all the time. I have three of those and they don't make me a better shooter. Yeah. I think I should have spent that on ammo. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, good points that you're bringing up. And if I'm on a budget where I just don't feel like, you know, it might not be a budget constraint, but maybe I just want to put something together at home. Is there maybe things that I could throw together that maybe resemble the same kind of capability, but just not as robust and expensive? There are, there are, uh, there are classes that you can take as well. Um, when we start talking about carrying different items, uh, not only do you want those items, but you want to take a class occasionally to learn how to use those items and to put them into practical use. But there's all there's all kinds of items that are around your house. Uh, when you talk about uh, stopping bleeding, a lot of people. One of the uh, old concepts is uh, I've cravat. Had a, right, good old cravat. Hell yeah, yeah. Those types of. I things. use cravats as toilet paper on the side of the road when I don't have toilet. Paper. <laughs> And, and you have to sometimes. You got to do it. They're, they're a Just good like moment. t-shirts yeah. that you're socks. wearing. Socks. Socks that you're wearing. Take off your socks. But yeah, you gotta, you've, you've got to, in, in the austere environment, you have to be very creative in what you use. Uh, I've even seen, uh, there's some good videos out there made by different, different companies to where you can even take, if you're in an austere environment, you can even take uh the Nalgene water bottle like you guys have at Philcraft and use it as a junctional tourniquet where you actually put it in the crease of your leg and you could take a belt or something, something tight that you put around it and it actually stops the blood flow to, you can either put it up under your armpit or in, or in your crotch to, to cut off those arteries as well. I've never thought about using a Nalgene bottle to cut off um, blood flow to my crotch. but. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty, uh, it leaves a lot to the imagination. Yeah. We're going to try that later. <laughs> we'll try that after this. You give us a class on that after yeah. this. It'll be a private class. Yeah, sure. private class. I, You know, the analogy, it's, it's cool that you say about the analogy bottle. And I, I just remember being a Joe in the infantry. And we, I mean, Kurt, you know this. We were just using sticks and cravats. Absolutely. I mean, that was huge. Yeah. And it was, it, it was, it was less technical, uh, but it just made sense. You were in the field. You're on a combat patrol. What do you have access to? Well, you got a cravat that you're maybe using to hold up your BDUs around your waist, and then you have access to sticks that are everywhere. So those kind of things are important to to, uh, to know. What 
where can, you know, this is a little early in the episode to be asking this, but I, I just want, since it's on the forefront of our minds, I want to uh, ask you, where can people find you at on social media just to learn more about some of the stuff we're talking about? On social media, I have an Instagram account. It's at Devil Dog Consult. Uh, Facebook as well, Devil Dog Consulting. And then the Twitter account is basically the same thing. Devil Do you Dog tweet? Um, no, it's mostly <laughs> it's mostly LinkedIn to the Facebook and, tw- and uh, Instagram, and it just automatically sends. Oh, so uh, you're not unique with your tweets. No, I'm not a twatter. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to be a twatter. Yeah. Um, all right, so cool, man. I appreciate that information. That's real good stuff. And, and you know, if you guys want to learn more about these kits, especially the IFAC, we'll definitely have some more episodes. In fact, probably scenario-based episodes where we talk about specific events. We're about midway in this episode. I kind of want to go into the things that um, brought up some interest in me in this tactical med uh, class or this uh, episode because there's a lot of lessons to be learned in both these guys' stories about what they experience when dealing with trauma. And when you deal with trauma, we teach this. We teach this mindset stuff all the time, right? But when you think about trauma and trying to teach a technical skill in trauma – to somebody who's going to experience something very stressful, it's different when it happens in real life. And so learning through these people's experiences, these guys' experiences, you'll definitely be better off for it. So, you know, without further ado, I'd like to go into some story time with uh, Kurt and Kevin. All right, Kurt. So, you know, I'm going to start off with you, man. I think the story that you told me the other day, number one, it's an emotional story because uh, I mean, you just tell it to me. I could tell that it had a profound impact on your life as far as how you looked at combat casualty care, how you looked at trauma and how you looked at warfare altogether. So, you know, in your own way, in your own words, go ahead and and I'll ask you questions along the way, but uh, tell us about the situation that you told me the other day. So 2003, I was assigned to 18th Airborne Corps Long Range Surveillance F Company 51st. I was in third platoon, Phantom 3-1 was our call sign. And we were basically at the initial onset of the invasion of Iraq, we were attached to fifth corps doing missions in central Iraq. And then later on we would be reassigned to the 101st Airborne Division under General Petraeus, uh, which took us up to Mosul up north. And you hear a lot about that now in the news, right? We had been up there probably about a couple months and ended up being called by our battalion at the time, which was down in Tikrit. And they let us know that they wanted uh, some of the guys in the, in some of the platoons to come down for a battalion change of command. So our chain of command at the company level at that time assigned different LERS teams in the, in the platoons Uh, to go down and be a part of this battalion change of command. So the different leadership in the platoons organized a convoy, and it was made up of Humvees and uh, LMTVs. So uh, May 30th, 2003, uh, don't don't remember anything particularly special about the day other than, you know, guys in in the platoon were definitely not excited about having to go down to a battalion change of command. Uh, while, there were, while there was work to do up in Mosul. So uh, basically got on the vehicles and we headed off south to Tikrit. Uh, about halfway through that trip, uh, bad 
Wait, so you said you guys were going to decree to do a change of command ceremony? Yes. Okay. All right. So we got on the road early in the morning, and about halfway through the convoy, a bad anybody that's been to Iraq knows uh, or Afghanistan that bad storms move in, sand, wind, mud, rain, and visibility uh, was. I mean, it was horrible. I, I stuck my hand outside of a Humvee that I was driving. My team happened to be in a Humvee uh, directly behind an LMTV, and I couldn't even see my hand. So the convoy pulled over to the side of the road, uh, which was a good decision, obviously, right? Because visi visibility was basically zero. And we waited the storm out. So the storm blew through. We were all soaking wet. The road was wet, uh, all muddy and uh, shitty. So storm blows through, we get back out onto the road, probably doing about 50, 55 miles an hour. And I immediately noticed vehicles ahead of me uh, coming to rapid stops or trying to, and vehicles locking brakes. Um, I was paying attention to what was going on. I immediately slowed the vehicle. The LMTV that was in front of me, unfortunately didn't see the convoy slowing, tried to hit their brakes and basically the LMTV slid 180 degrees on the highway. And as soon as the LMTV hit dirt, uh, obviously the tires caught traction and the vehicle flipped about three or four times. Well, that vehicle was full of uh, guys from second platoon and uh, they were packed in the back of that vehicle. There was an Air Force pallet that was on the bottom of that vehicle. And I believe there were two or three guys riding in the cab of the LMTV at the time. So what's, what's an LMTV? It's like a, a big ass truck, right? Yeah. So an LMTV is a, a troop transport vehicle. Um, and like 30 people can fit on the back of that thing, right? I don't, yeah, it's, it's definitely a large amount of troops. And I think probably at that time there were 12, 13, 14 guys in the back of it. And like I said, a couple guys in the cab of the vehicle. So this, this vehicle spins out of control, uh, on the highway. And as soon as the wheels hit the hit the dirt, they catch traction. The vehicle flips three or four times. And, and I can remember being in that in that vehicle and looking over at my team leader, a guy named Adrian. And we were like, holy shit, the vehicles flipping. There's guys coming out of the vehicle. There's equipment flying everywhere. And immediately we both uh, we had a we had a, a really squared away guy on our LERS team. And his name is Mike. And Mike was an EMT in Atlanta. He was a he was in Ranger Battalion, and then he ended up getting out of the military. And when 9-11 happened, he came back in. And so when he left Ranger Battalion, he was an EMT in Atlanta and had a lot of good experience there with trauma. So he was our medic, you know, naturally on our team. And, and so Mike immediately grabbed his aid bag. I was driving, and we literally drove to where the LMTV stopped. Now, all along the way, there's bodies and broken M4s, rifles, equipment everywhere. And um, we immediately exited the vehicle, you know, placed the vehicle in park to make sure that it didn't roll or do something and, and hurt somebody else, uh, placed the vehicle in park. And immediately my team went into action trying to recover guys underneath the LMTV. I'll never forget it because it was one of the most chaotic scenes I've ever uh, come up upon in my life, right? There's guys crying, uh, all kinds of, I mean, were guys crying like immediately after the accident happened, like right after it happened, they're, they're, they're breaking down. No, it, I mean, this was the guys, uh, getting emotional and, and these were guys that were injured. Um, there were several guys that 
had broken legs and had impacted the ground extremely hard. They weren't knocked out. They were still conscious. Um, but I think, you know, pain was setting in like immediately from breaking a femur. Uh, we had a guy break two femurs. Um, and essentially, uh, we got to the LMTV and immediately uh, I noticed uh, a guy pinned under the rear side of the LMTV. And um, this vehicle was laying on his pelvis and um, he was just pinned under the LMTV and he was conscious. And um, so immediately started talking to him trying to assess, you know, what was going on with him. And then we realized that there were other guys trapped underneath the LMTV. So uh, we started to basically the ass into the LMTVs laying on the ground and there's guys pinned underneath it. And we knew that we needed to get those guys out. So guys on my team were digging out underneath the LMTV just to create any kind of space to get their bodies underneath the LMTV to try to get to these guys. Um, we would eventually get to the to to two guys, special uh, specialist Zachariah Long and specialist uh, Kyle Griffin, and unfortunately, both of those guys uh, on impact were killed. And uh, so, one of the things that I remember is that uh, I had a great platoon sergeant at the time. His name was Matt, and Matt immediately knew that the whole situation was bad, anticipating that there were going to be casualties. He immediately set it up or set up a casualty collection point, which is something that's pretty standard that, that you do in the military, your training kicks in and the, the senior enlisted member or the senior member of the party starts to set up a casualty collection that's, point. That's an area where you, you uh, prioritize. Yeah, you, you consolidate and prioritize exactly. casualties, right? Exactly, so uh, Matt was on top of it, uh, set up the casualty collection point. Once we got uh, Zach and Kyle out from underneath the LMTV. Um, we immediately made makeshift litters uh, with the sides and broken off. Basically the, the LMTV, some of the pieces were broken off of the vehicle and we were able to use those as litters uh, to move them to the casualty collection point. And basically at that time, you know, there were other guys realizing that, oh my God, two guys are dead. And, you know, that's, Kind of one of the things that when I look back on this story and I and then, you know, later on through my military career, I would I would experience other unfortunate events, whether it was combat related, accident related in combat. And I realized that the emotional connection with guys when you serve with them and they're injured is obviously a very heavy thing. When you see a guy that you serve with, you love, serve shoulder to shoulder with and, and then they're they're no longer alive. And I remember guys kind of pulling away from the situation after seeing two of their, you know, best friends killed and they just sat down and cried. And, you know, the unfortunate part about that was there were still injured guys that needed attention. And so um, I was in a different platoon. Uh, didn't mean that I didn't care about those guys, but I did realize the, the severity of the situation that other folks needed care and attention. Um, and other guys did as well. I wasn't the only one. And, and so we moved around and did the best that we could treating casualties um, and helping consolidate them at the casualty collection point. Um, I think one of the unfortunate events with that whole thing is because the weather moved through, we were unable to get med a medevac helicopter there in a timely manner. So unfortunately, um, when we set up our satellite communications to relay that, you know, there had been a terrible accident and we needed help uh, with aerial medevac. 
they were unable to fly because visibility was so poor. So visibility was zero. And unfortunately, medevac helicopters could not get in to pick up casualties to get them back to the cache in a timely manner. Specialist Michael Gleason was one of the soldiers that was riding in the back of the vehicle that was thrown out. Mike impacted with the ground. And essentially, when we got to him, his chest cavity was collapsed. And he, unfortunately, his face was uh, pretty mangled. We had to move in, swipe teeth out uh, to clear the airway. And... Uh, we worked on him for several hours to try to keep him uh, alive. And eventually, uh, after about, I think it was two or three hours, we were able to get uh, medevac birds in. He was still alive when we put him on the bird and, you know, he flew away to the cache for further medical treatment. Unfortunately, we would learn later that night uh, after the crash scene, basically we set up what we call a run or rest overnight position because we had all this equipment strewn everywhere. We had guys hurt and we needed to secure the equipment, clean up the crash site, and then make our way back up to Mosul the following day. So we, so we run for about 24 hours overnight. The next morning we'd wake up and go back. Well, unfortunately that night uh, we would be, you know, sitting around the Humvees and we got a radio call on satellite communications that specialist Gleason had passed at the cache. And, you know, that was also a pretty eye-opening experience for me because there were two specific guys that worked on him. Uh, one guy was the medic on my team, Mike, and another guy named Rick. And both of those guys obviously were severely impacted by learning that this guy that all of us knew who had a great reputation and was an awesome soldier you know, there just wasn't anything that we could do to save him. And, uh, you know, those guys did everything humanly possible to make that happen and to, and to try to save his life. What did you guys, after it was all said and done, did you guys pack out and just drive back to Missoula? Yeah, so basically we secured all the sensitive items, you know, typical uh, military, you know, protocol, sensitive items everywhere. So weapons, night vision. Um, any ordinance, anything like that. Obviously, we gathered all that up and then we secured it all. And then we made our way back up to, to Mosul, back to where our company was located. So dealing with that experience yourself, is there anything that happened either mental or physical that you noticed like that impeded your ability to do the job? Or did you just know automatically, hey, based on my combat lifesaver training that I was going to go into this immediate response. How, how were your, your natural responses um, after the accident happened? I think, uh, you know, my natural responses were initially, holy shit, that just happened. And then immediately we, you know, there was action going on around me from my, from the team, from my teammates. And, you know, that helped spur me into action and kind of, you know, guys were, um, they were definitely organized. The guys that I think that weren't emotionally affected, they were like, hey, these guys are in trouble and we need to apply the medical training that we have to save lives and, and get these guys out of here to try to get them to further medical care. I'm sure I'm sure a lot of the guys that actually did survive that had traumatic injury, they survived because of the treatment, right? Because of the, the medics and the guys that were there. Yeah. So basically, uh, there 
you know, a lot of different injuries. Like I said, broken femurs, smashed pelvis, uh, broken arms, all kinds of different different injuries. And, you know, we were able to stabilize these guys. Um, like Kevin was talking about earlier, you know, guys go into shock, they get cold. All these different things are happening. And I think, you know, based off of – and we had basic medical training at that point. And um, we did the things that we were taught. You know, we did the best that we could with the equipment that we had and the training that we had. And, uh, you know, no doubt in my mind, we were able to, you know, save other guys' lives as well. That's, that's pretty cool, man. And, and what kind of what, – based on the whole situation in, in its totality, what kind of impacts did it make on your career in the military? Because this was before you went to Special Forces. So I know – you know, you reflected on some of those the other night, but what did it do to improve or even inhibit your abilities in special forces? I think ultimately that experience alone helped me throughout the rest of my military career because it, it showed me right off the bat, my first combat deployment that, you know, sometimes you don't get a, a vote. Sometimes you don't get the choice. Sometimes things happen. And if you're if you're not prepared for those things, then you're doing yourself and the others that you're serving around or maybe it's even your family. You're doing them a disservice. So I think the biggest takeaway was, you know, a lot of people want to learn how to shoot and do all these cool, sexy things. Right. But they forget about medicine. And, you know, a takeaway was like every time we were doing med training, it was, hey, take it seriously. Bad shit happens. And, you know, if you're trained properly. Uh, you obviously are going to save lives instead of standing there not knowing what to do. And it was something that potentially you could have done and you didn't. It's unfortunate that the hardest lessons learned are through loss and tragedy, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you just named them off, but I'll name them again. It's Specialist Zachariah Long, Specialist Kyle Griffin, and Specialist Mike Gleason. You know, all lost their lives in Iraq. Uh, during the movement with the uh, 18th Airborne Corps. Appreciate you share, sharing that story with us, man. Thanks. There's Yeah, there's definitely lots of lessons to be learned from that. And, you know, just finishing off of that and, and finishing this episode, I you know, this is going to be a part two or, or a two-part episode because uh, we like to keep these around 40, 45 minutes. But I want to get Kevin's input on the story that he just heard and then maybe give us some insight into maybe an acronym or something that we could learn or take away for assessing casualties like that in that instance you know you come you get in a car accident or a car accident takes place in front of you and you come up on the scene of the accident what's the first things that you need to do and is there some kind of acronym or cheat that that um you know people can take away there is and uh like like kurt said you know anytime you're doing medical training whether it's civilian wise or guys when they're in the military you have to take it serious because you never know when you might be the de facto medic or you're having to help the medic that's uh, taking care of people. So you have to take uh, your medical training just as serious as you do your, it, your long gun. And what you just said, I just want to cut in real quick. That's, that's like the, the biggest lesson learned in, in our, our lives now, right? Because now we're civilians. We don't have a, you know, a truck full of firefighter EMTs. We don't have a bunch of green berets or infantry guys that have been in combat lifesaver or have advanced medical training. When you're in the civilian world, it's you're you're on your own. You're a sole proprietor of your own destiny, and the training that you have is the training that you have. Yeah, you're right, and you have to uh, you you have to get get training. And there's there's all kinds of companies uh, across America, and there's even trauma centers in different parts of the world 
in America. I know that the trauma center in our county offers bleeding control for civilians. It's a two-hour class, and not only do they give you the class for free, but they give you a cat tourniquet for free as well. So it's about $70 worth of class slash product that you get, and you, you take the class for free. And so, you know, there's more and more trauma centers and different different hospitals that are that are kind of getting on the bandwagon of uh, bleeding control is becoming now what CPR did in the 80s. Everybody's wanting to get into it and realizes that uh, those are just things that you need that are just as important as CPR and knowing how to clear airways and and doing the Heimlich maneuver and all the stuff that uh, sometimes people learn in their CPR classes. So bleeding control, we've joked around it a couple of times and even said that bleeding control is the new CPR for for the 2000s now. But there's a, a couple of things that you always want to do. Um, it's called ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. Somebody, obviously, you have to make sure that their airway is open. Uh, you have to make sure they're bleeding, and then you have to make sure that their, their heart is actually beating. Um, and then also you can throw in uh, a blood sweep in there as well, whether it's... Uh, regardless of what your casualty is, because those are the, the big things that are going to kill people is if they're not, if their airway is not open. And sometimes it can be just as simple as repositioning their airway. Um, if it's a traumatic event, uh, we always pe teach people to do the jaw thrust. Um, Non-traumatic events, it's the head tilt chin lift. If you've ever taken a CPR course, uh, that's the uh, kind of the terms that they use. So those are the, the, the major things is if somebody's, their airway has to be open, um, if their airway is open, um, then if they have any type of uh, external bleeding, you're going to want to stop that as fast as you can. Cool. So the ABCs, I, I think we should go into detail in part two of that and, and really narrow that down. I use what's called MARCH or the short version of that, which is MARS or MAR, which is Massive Hemorrhaging Airway and Respiration, uh, which is what, what I, where I grew up in special operations, learning and understanding but we'll talk about both of those things next time. And, you know, we don't have enough time this episode to talk about your story. But Kevin also has an interesting story where in a similar experience, he he experienced really on his first call, right? Your first EMT call out in the Marine Corps on active duty was a, a helicopter crash. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So we're, we're definitely going to go into detail about that and, and tell you guys the lessons learned. I appreciate you guys tuning in. I appreciate you, Kevin, coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Kurt, for you coming on today, too. We plan to do a lot more episodes because we're going to be co-located for a bit. So yep. I'm looking forward to that. We're going to do part two uh, next episode. And also, me and Kurt are going to do a long gun episode, which would be real interesting to talk about. Uh, we'll have Kevin on as well since he's he's a guest here. He doesn't know shit about what, long guns. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but he could be here, too, to, to fill the gap. No pun intended. So... Thanks for tuning in, and we appreciate all you guys' feedback. We haven't posted an episode because I've been on the road for a couple of weeks, and we're still in the fifth spot on iTunes, which is awesome. We're beating soft rep. As long as we're beating soft rep, I'm happy because they're <laughs> Navy SEALs, and we, we we like Navy SEALs, but we have a competitive thing going with the Navy SEALs. As long as we're beating the SEALs, we're good. So thanks for tuning in, guys. Make sure you tune in to the podcast on iTunes as well as SoundCloud. Leave feedback. Subscribe. Tell your friends about it. We, you know, we're interested to get your guys' feedback. You guys can also email us at media at philcraftsurvival.com. That's media at philcraftsurvival.com. As always, we all got our Instagram handles. That's our little thing. 
We got at Devil Dog Consult, right? We got at Soft Survivor and at Philcraft Survival. And then you have Kurt at something, something, something. <laughs> <laughs> no, his is at Kurt underscore Team Philcraft, right? Is that right? That's right. Oh, we yeah. We, yay. I'm new here. You're, you're the new guy. <laughs> it should be at Kurt underscore Cherry. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Till next time, stay alert, stay alive.